Good evening, <clears throat> good evening, friends. I was just doing a little bit of walking meditation in the dining room, which is a favorite place of mine for walking meditation. I've done a lot of it in that dining room, and it made me very happy to see it being used in that way by many people. I was thinking about how many miles I have logged doing walking meditation now. I don't, it's hundreds or thousands, I don't know. Maybe I walked across the country equivalent, I don't know, it's a lot. And they haven't all been moments of bliss by any means. But I do value every step and I would not trade a single one for anything. And I remember hearing, you know, after he had this enlightenment experience, the Buddha, he still did sitting, walking, standing, lying, and in-betweening meditation. He kept doing that just for the joy of it, perhaps. I was uh, having a conversation with Don at lunchtime and and some thoughts and reflections of when I first started at least formally practicing. I think maybe I started practicing a long time ago, but um, in this life at least, it was a while ago now, but it put me in mind of some early times and, and I was reminded of a time about it's right around 25 years ago now when I went on a, I had the, the great fortune to be able to go on a pilgrimage to India to visit some of the Buddhist sites there. And at that time I had read a book that some of you may have read or heard of called Old Path White Clouds by Thich Nhat Hanh. And it's, a, it's kind of a, uh, well, it's a story of the life of the Buddha um, with a lot of um, beautiful images and illustrations, not so much drawings, but uh, through words of, of uh, the Buddha's life. And so I had a lot of stories in my mind uh, when I got, I, I had just finished reading that book. And I went first to a, a town, a city, small city called Rajgir, it was called Rajagaha at the time of the Buddha. And, uh, and I had it in mind, it, it, was the, it was the capital city of the kingdom of Magadha and the king there at the time of the Buddha was named uh, Bimbisara. And he was a student of the, and a disciple and supporter of the Buddhas. Um, and I had it in mind that I was going to walk from there to Bodhgaya so that I would be a real pilgrim, and show up on foot. And, uh, and kind of this romantic idea. <laughs> it's not that far, but it would have taken some days walking. 
But I, I was made aware uh, of the fact fairly quickly. I let go of this idea because I was made aware of the fact that that part of uh, Bihar state is, uh, was famous for its uh, dacoits, uh, highway robbers. Uh, it's a very poor country and there were a lot of, um, a lot of things going on there. And, and, and so robbery, uh, very prevalent. And that I, I would be lucky to survive my, my journey. <laughs> and some of you may have read a book by a teacher from uh, Thai forest tradition, Ajahn Suchito, who's teaching over at the Forest Refuge right now, uh, called uh, a pilgrimage time he spent there with, with a friend called Rude Awakenings. And he had a very, um, very intense experience with um, walking right in that very area. I think walking to Bodh Gaya is as I had in mind, he was, uh, he was accosted by some of these robbers and uh, was lucky to escape with his life. But it was so inspiring to me to be in that place and uh, I was fairly new, somewhat rather new to practice still. And, um, you know, I'd read about all these places where the Buddha and his disciples had walked and spent time and and th- even now, you can see the ancient city walls that were there at the time of the Buddha. The city has spread out beyond that, but they're there. You can see them going up the hill. And um, there's a, a park, a beautiful park, that uh, is where this, this place called the Squirrel Sanctuary. And uh, the Buddha did a lot of teaching, practicing there, and there are different caves and... Uh, there's a, a hill, a fairly good-sized hill, a little ways outside of the town uh, called the Gridakuta uh, mountain. It uh, means the vulture peak. And the Buddha spent a lot of time meditating there. And there's a, a kind of a stone and brick foundation near the top of one part of that, not the highest part, but a side hill. And it's said that there was a kuti that the Buddha would stay in on retreat there. And below that, there's a cave. It's called the Boar's Cave. Maybe a boar lived in there. I don't know. And it's said that uh, the Venerable Sariputta, the Buddha's one of his chief disciples, uh, attained full enlightenment there in that spot. And there's a, a story I'd like to share with you of that. It's said that uh, the Buddha was teaching, giving a discourse on mindfulness of Vedana, something we're bringing to our attention, uh, to a wandering ascetic named Diganaka, who happened to be uh, Venerable Sariputta's nephew. And the Buddha was teaching him, and and, uh, Sariputta was standing behind the Buddha, fanning him. And he said, he listened to the discourse as though he were sharing food that had been prepared for another. It was to another that the Blessed One was teaching the Dhamma. I too listened intently for my own good, and not in vain did I listen, for freed from all defilements I gained release. Visiting these places and getting these sense, you know, these were, were people, yogis like all of us, who spent time in these areas, practiced living beings because it seems so far away and, 
And we see statues like the one behind me and it can seem just like kind of a, a mythical story or a legend or something like that. During that visit, I was staying at a, uh, in these places that are kind of on the, the pilgrimage route in, in towns like Rajgir. There are um, pilgrim rest houses from different uh, Buddhist countries. And so I was staying in the Burmese Vihara, a very simple room there. And uh, they provide for pilgrims to come. And I was in the town. And the Vulture Peak, as I said, was outside of, of um, the town a ways. And, and I, I, I was there for a couple of weeks, I think, at least. And, and every morning it was my, uh, what I liked to do was to get up early and walk out to the, and climb the peak and be there in time to see the sunrise. And it was really scary. Very scary for me to, it was dark and I was walking and, and I was afraid of the robbers. <laughs> and it took about an hour to get out there and climb up to the top of the peak. And every morning I was, I, I, I thought maybe I'd stop being scared, but I was scared every day, but I did it anyway. And I remember every morning for that time, I would come to the top, winding up the path and to this foundation where the, they say the Buddha's hut was. And there was uh, one monk who was sitting there meditating and his robes were the color of the robes that uh, the, the monks from Sri Lanka wear these days. And uh, he was always already there. I thought maybe he'd been sitting all night, I don't know. And I would uh, sit there and meditate and uh, before that waiting as the sun rose and uh, watching, looking out over the fields. And um, it felt like the Buddha had just been there. That's such a timeless feeling to me. Rural India hasn't, at least parts of it, haven't changed all that much since that time. It was as though the Buddha had just gotten up to maybe go do some walking meditation, log in some miles. Once long ago, there was a town, I could say it was a a small city. It was named Kapilavattu. And some say that this place was named for uh, a very uh, great, highly regarded hermit sage named Kapila, because that word Kapilavattu means uh, Kapila's ground or Kapila's place. And maybe he is said to have lived in that area at one time. These days, there are a few who have even uh, heard of or recall that name, either Kapila or Kapilavattu. And the scholars and historians and people who take an interest in these kinds of things don't even agree on, on exactly where it was. Some say it was here and some say there. But most all agree that it lay within sight of the great Himalayas, the great mountains there. And at the time of the story, the this Kapilavatu was the capital of uh, an area that was ruled 
by King Suddhodana, and he was the, the head of the, the clan called Sakya, head of the Sakyans. And then in that part of what is now India or southern Nepal, uh, the area was, um, uh, the governance was based on different kinds of clan affiliations in these small uh, kingdoms of a sort. And uh, this Sudodana, he uh, married a young woman of uh, very noble birth named Maya. And she came from a neighboring uh, town named Devadaha. Devadaha means, uh, Daha means pond or a fountain, pond and deva, so it, uh, are devas, so it's the pond of the devas. And it's said that uh, there was very holy water there in the town and that saints and devas would bathe there. And she, uh, Maya, came from the, the clan that ruled in that area, the Kolian clan. And the marriage was probably in part the cementing of an alliance between these two clans to uh, have, have there be ease in trade and peace between them. And so uh, that was at least part of, of that marriage, which was probably arranged, as was often the case in those days, and maybe still is in some places. And so Maya moved then to Kapilavatu when, after the marriage, and her younger sister Pajapati came as well. And after a time, Maya became pregnant. And when uh, the time for giving birth came and uh, drew near, uh, she set off for her parents' home to go back to Devadaha because that was the custom was to go to uh, be with one's family, especially one's mother at the time of giving birth. And, and while she was on her way, she went into labor. And it was near a, a, a wayside a garden park area called the Lumbini Garden. And, it's, and she went into labor there and she gave birth there, uh, holding onto the branch of a sal tree in the park there. And so uh, she turned back, back to Kapilavatu. And it's said that uh, just one week later, she died suddenly, some complications from the childbirth. And so her younger sister, Pajapati, uh, adopted became the foster mother of the, the baby boy who was born there. And though the, her death was a, was a tragic event, the birth of the baby was seen as very joyous, the first uh, child of the, that marriage. And so there came a time, it was the, 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 the young baby's naming day, and the king uh, arranged for a festival and had a holiday declared in the town, and, and there was a hermit sage, another one of these hermit sages show up in these stories. His name was Asita. And he, uh, he was very highly re regarded. And he came to visit. And he made a prophecy about this baby boy, predicted that he would either become a great uh, leader and ruler, or else he would become a, a, very, um, a very famous ascetic and then a teacher of great renown. And at that time on the naming day, this young uh, baby prince, he was a prince, the son of the king and the queen, was given the name Siddhartha, which mean, means one who accomplishes his goals. 
and uh, the king Sudadana, he wanted he he you know he heard these two predictions. Well, he had one of them in mind that he wanted to come to pass. He was into the um, the great leader of <laughs> ruler and leader possibility, and so he decided that he would um, raise the boy in in very uh, pleasant surroundings, really in in luxury. And then to, to keep him happy and, and distractive and free from uh, seeing anything unpleasant, free from contact with any kind of religion or spiritual uh, practices, and, and free of any contact with any kind of human hardship or suffering. just didn't want him to see any of that. Anything that might incline him to go this other route that was a, a possibility. And he was given the best that they could bring and give for him, fine foods and the finest clothing, fine perfumes, everything beautiful and pleasant. And later on in life, uh, Siddhartha would recall this time in in this way. I was delicate, most delicate, supremely delicate. Lotus pools were made for me at my father's house solely for my benefit. Blue lilies in one, white lilies in another, red lilies in the third. I used no sandalwood that did not come from Benares. My turban, my tunic, my lower garments, my cloak were all made of Benares silk. A white sunshade was held over me day and night so that no cold or heat or dust or grit or even dew might inconvenience me. He said that he had three homes, three palaces, one for each season, one for the the hot season, one for the rainy season, one for the cool season. He was given the very best education, training in the things that would, uh, were befitting for one who would become the heir to the, the leadership of the clan. And, um, he was an arranged marriage when he was 16. He wouldn't have had any choice. That was just what happened. A young woman of high birth named Yasodhara. But he was still kept in, lived in this secluded way for the next 13 years. And then at the age of 29, there was this, this real change in his life. This kind of call to destiny, you might say. And in, in kind of the mm, sort of archetypal or mythological story, the traditional story of this, the, this call to awakening or to destiny came in the form of what are called the four heavenly messengers. And it's said that he ventured out beyond the confines of his sheltered uh, life and behind, outside the palace walls. And he took four trips into, into the city which he'd never seen before. And he went in a chariot driven by his charioteer, Channa, And the first time he went out and he saw an old person. And he'd never seen anyone really old. And and he asked Channa, what's what's wrong with that person? Channa said, that's an old person. 
Aging happens for everyone, even you. Bad news. He goes back into the palace. Not good. He goes out a second time. He sees uh, someone who's very sick. Really, really struggling with a very bad illness. And he, he asked again, what's wrong with that person? What's happening? And he said, that's a sick person. Sickness comes in one form or another to pretty much everyone. And the prince said, me too? Yep, you too. Oh, real bad. He goes back, comes out a third time, and there's a corpse. Someone who has died and the corpse has not been moved. What's, what's happened there? That's a dead person. That's a corpse. Death comes to all, prince. Really bad. Aging sickness, bad enough. This is really bad, goes back. Comes out a fourth time. And this time he sees a wandering uh, ascetic. And he asked, and he was struck by the, this uh, wanderer's appearance. And he asked his chariot driver, what's that person? Wearing simple robes and uh, really looks different from most of the rest of the people in the town. He said, oh, that's a, that's a spiritual seeker. He's an ascetic. He's, he's left the worldly uh, concerns behind and he's seeking release from death and suffering. And so he was, the prince was very troubled and very moved by these sights. In his own words, he said this, I thought when an ordinary person who is subject to aging sees another who is aged, they are shocked, humiliated, disgusted. They forget that they are no exception. But I too am subject to aging, not exempt from aging. And so it cannot befit me to be shocked, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another who is aged. And when I considered thus, the vanity of youth left me entirely. And then I thought, I too am subject to sickness, not exempt from sickness. And I too am subject to death, not exempt from death. It cannot befit me to be shocked, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing one who is sick or on seeing one who is dead. And when I considered thus, the vanities of health and of life left me entirely. So there was this realization that he wasn't going to live forever in good health. This contemplation of of these fundamental existential truths, you could say. They, They landed very profoundly in his heart and they inspired him to take another look. What's the point if I'm just gonna get old sick and eventually die. What's the point to all this? What's the point to this life of luxury or to anything? Is there, is there some understanding? Is there something that would help me make sense of these truths? 
There's a story from uh, the great Indian epic, the Mahabharata. It's a story of, it's a huge epic story. And there are these brothers in there um, who are main characters and these different um, epic wars and things going on. And, and at one point in the story, there's a kind of uh, yaksha, a water deity. When, we chant, when I chant the invitation to the devas, I, I make sure that the yak, yakas in Pali, yakshas in Sanskrit, they're one of the ones I invite, water spirit. And he had put a spell on, on uh, one of the main, one of the brothers named Yudhisthira on his brothers and, and they had fallen into a, a, a deep sleep and he agrees to free them if Yudhisthira can answer a series of questions. And so one of the questions, I don't know if, maybe it's the last one, he said, he asks him, what is the most remarkable thing in the, ver- in the world? The very most remarkable thing. And Yudhisthira says, day after day, countless creatures are going to the abode of Yama. Yama is the god of death. So countless creatures are dying. Yet those that remain behind believe themselves to be immortal. That this is the most marvelous thing. The beings don't actually take this in, you could say. And in one of the teachings in uh, the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha tells a similar story about a man who has died and he, he appears before uh, Yama, the god of, of death. And Yama says to him, good man, didn't you see the first divine messenger that appeared among human beings? And the, the person, the man says, no, I didn't see. But good man, didn't you ever see among human beings a person 80, 90, or 100 years of age, frail, bent like a roof bracket, crooked, wobbling as they go along, leaning on a stick, ailing, youth gone, with broken teeth, with gray and scanty hair, or bald, with wrinkled skin and blotched limbs. Yes, I have seen this. Good man, didn't it occur to you, an intelligent and mature person? (laughs) I too am subject to aging. (laughs) I am not exempt from aging. Let me now do good by body, speech, and mind. And then he asks him about the, the second and the third. Didn't you ever see a sick person? Didn't you ever see a dead person? Didn't it occur to you, an intelligent and mature person? <laughs> I too am subject to illness. I am not exempt from illness. I too am subject to death. I am not exempt from death. Let me now do good by body, speech, and mind. I mean, we, we tend at least at times, to be a lot like the guy in that story. You know, we don't like to see these things or think about them. We don't like to bring them to mind. And we have a lot of conditioning in these modern times, maybe especially to avoid thinking about these things. And we see life, life's happening now, old age and death, somewhere down the road, hopefully down a long road. And we'll deal with those when the time comes. These heavenly messengers, they're, they're still around. They didn't just come around at the time of the Buddha. They're here on the retreat with us. They're here in this room tonight. And we might easily see them 
but we tend to turn away, to not look, to not listen to their message. The fear of these things, perhaps especially of death, it may be subtle at times, but it's very pervasive for so many of us. And we do our best to keep it out of our consciousness and we focus our energy on getting and having in the moment things and possessions and acquiring experiences and, and putting together all that we use to define ourselves, who and what we are, to enhance our sense of self in different ways. And this focus in, in this outward way can kind of help put up a kind of shield so that we don't have to really come in contact with these truths and we don't have to look at them. And in countries like the United States, you know, we, we hide things like that away so much, put them away so we don't have to see them. But, but these truths of aging, of illness, eventually death, they're, they're true, they're inevitable. True for everyone, true for the Buddha. We read a little bit from uh, the Jara Sutta. Jara means aging or old age. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Savati in the eastern monastery, the palace of Migara's mother. Now on that occasion, the Blessed One, on emerging from seclusion in the late afternoon, sat warming his back in the western sun. Then the Venerable Ananda went to the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down to the Blessed One, began massaging his limbs with his hand. And he said, it's amazing, Lord, it's astounding how the Blessed One's complexion is no longer so clear and bright. His limbs are flabby and wrinkled, his back bent forward. There's a discernible change in his faculties, in the faculty of the eye the faculty of the ear, of the nose, of the tongue, and of the body. That's the way it is, Ananda. When young, one is subject to aging. When healthy, subject to illness. When alive, subject to death. The complexion is no longer so clear and bright. The limbs are flabby and wrinkled. The back bent forward, and there is a discernible change in the faculties the faculty of the eye, the nose, the ear, the tongue, and of the body. I, I love this sutta. <laughs> I mean, they, you know, they're so real. You know, the Buddha had a bad back. And the kindly Ananda, who had, was his cousin and attendant, giving him a massage in the warm afternoon sun. Blessed one, dude, what happened? We got old. And if we take birth on this plane of existence, certainly on any plane of existence, in the very moment, right at the moment of birth, we're headed in one direction only. There's only one direction, the trajectory of a life. It's only going one way. And when death does come, as it inevitably will, 
it's going to take all our stuff, all our acquisitions. We're going to have to lay it all down. In a very real way, it's not waiting way down at the end of some road. It's walking right along with us, every step. It's our constant companion. The other night I read a a quotation from a book called The Teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda. I'll read a little more from that book. This is Don Juan is uh, teaching his his, uh, student, Carlos. Death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at an arm's length. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. The issue of our death is never pressed far enough. Death is the only wise advisor we have. Your death will tell you that nothing really matters outside its touch. One of us here has to change and change fast. One of us here has to learn again that death is the hunter and that it is always to one's left. One of us here has to ask death's advice and drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to those who live their lives as if death will never tap them. Think of your death right now. It is at an arm's length. It may tap you at any moment. So really you have no time for crappy thoughts and moods. Nobody has time for that. You didn't pull any punches, huh? Those are strong words. But they do point to very important truth. You know, we don't have any idea how much longer we're going to live. Nothing's guaranteed. The next breath is not guaranteed. Reflection from uh, teacher Stephen Batchelor. Death alone is certain, the time of death uncertain. Given this, what should I do? I, I actually, for a long time now, maybe always, but more and more, I see this practice as a preparation for the moment of death, for the time of dying and for death. It's guaranteed to be interesting thing that will happen. And I would really love to be there for that in as clear and mindful a way as possible. I was uh, on retreat at Spirit Rock a couple of years ago. I had the chance to sit there in their winter two-month retreat. And one morning I was up very early. I tend to get up quite early uh, on retreat more of a morning person. And 
And I was doing walking meditation. I was by myself. I had been sitting and then I was walking, sat for a couple of hours and then I was doing walking meditation. And at that time I had this, I just, this thought came into my mind, oh, this would be a great time to die right now. It wasn't a death wish, but there was a lot of mindfulness and concentration and equanimity in the mind. It would have been a great moment, really there for it. And I, I thought well, it would have been a drag for the yogi who had to find my body. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, there were some downsides in that regard. And I told, uh, Carol Wilson was teaching and I was checking in with her and I told her and she said she'd kill me if I died <laughs> because uh, <laughs> they'd have to find someone to replace me for some of my teaching <laughs> duties <laughs> and she didn't want to have to do that. <laughs> but just that feeling, there was no, um, no clinging to existence at all in the mind at that time. It's not always that way. But we can practice. We can practice. Let's try it for a few moments. Let's practice as though this is your last in-breath. Might be. And this out-breath, the last one of those. This mood, even this crappy mood. If it's your last one, you want to be there for it. Or this joy in the heart with sensation. The sound of the rain. Hearing. Last time you hear that. so beautiful. doesn't matter what's happening. Let me be here for it. I was sitting with my father when he died. I was holding his hand and I had one hand on his heart. And my sister and I had been, uh, we'd, one of us had been with him, I think most of the time in the last, uh, I was able to get there uh, just before he, he died, about a day and a half. And he'd been, he hadn't opened his eyes that whole time since I got there, but my sister and I felt that he could, he could hear us. We had the sense that he could hear, but he wasn't responding. And in, and I was watching this vein pulsing on his neck and the breaths were very fine. 
Things got very subtle. And just within about less than a minute before that vein stopped pulsing and the breath went out for the last time, he opened his eyes the first time and he was looking somewhere, (laughs) wasn't in that room. I really wanted to see what he was seeing. On the morning of his death at the age of 77 uh, in uh, the year 1360, uh, there was a Zen master, Kozan Ichiko. And he, they, it's said that he wrote this poem that I'm about to read. He put down his brush and then died sitting up. Empty-handed I entered the world. Barefoot I leave it. My coming, my going, Two simple happenings that got entangled. Such a simple, beautiful expression of this deep equanimity and total letting go. Some of you have heard me at times talking, telling stories about an old monk that I used to visit a lot when I had the chance who lived in the Sagaing Hills in Upper Burma and my friends Uh, called him the Happy Sayadaw. And uh, he died a few years ago now at the age of 99. Probably the happiest being I've ever met. Very um, highly regarded. He'd been a teacher of a lot of famous teachers and he was living a very simple life and He was uh, so light. One of the last times I saw him, he was coming back from having been invited out for a meal and to maybe give a a talk. And he was 96 or 97. (laughs) He couldn't walk, it's steep hills where he was living, it's all hills, and he couldn't walk up the stairs by himself. So these younger monks had made a I kind of put their hands together and made a seat for him and then one was behind holding him up and he was they were taking him up the stairs and his legs were down and they were kind of moving in the air they weren't touching the ground <laughs> and he was laughing and laughing <laughs> and uh, you know it sounds kind of undignified but he was so dignified in that and one time we went to see him and he said oh Saida how are you and he said Oh, I almost died last week. (laughs) No problem with that. (laughs) Buddha taught that it's all of our attachments. This is Dara's talk the other night, all that we cling to, maybe especially a sense of self that is the cause of our suffering. And if we live with this understanding, open to these heavenly messengers and live with the understanding that death is eventually going to part us from everything, all that we hold dear, including whatever sense of self we may have cobbled together, we might be able to start letting go of it all now. Might save us from a lot of dukkha down the road. 
there are four meditations in, in this tradition called the guardian meditations. And, and uh, one of these is meditation on death. There's the recollection of the qualities of the Buddha, loving kindness meditation, contemplation of the, the different parts of the body, and uh, meditation on death. It, it might not seem that obvious a connection. Why would that be thought of as a guardian or protection? And our hearts might not leap up. How oh, great. I get to meditate on death. Yippee. And we think, well, that's kind of a dreary subject. Why would I want to think about that, meditate on that? You know, it hits so close to home. And and how would it be a guardian or protection for us? You know, maybe maybe the translators made a mistake. Or maybe the Buddha made, made an error there. And there might be times in our life, circumstances... Uh, that um, that would indicate that it's not a good time to uh, contemplate this. It's not necessarily always a good time, although maybe. But if it's done skillfully and carefully, it can be very powerful in our lives, in our meditation. You know, and sometimes if we're young, we we might fear that that bringing death to mind or any of these heavenly messengers, is going to rob us of something, that we'll lose something, and we see our future out in front of us, and we're afraid that we'll, we'll be robbed of some vitality or possibility. And, you know, the point of this, this the, the way it serves as a guardian, you know, the point isn't to make us feel bad or, or create some kind of resignation, sense of powerlessness or defeat in the face of the inevitable. We might fear that these kinds of reflections, that contemplating this, that meditating on our mortality would be depressing, but we often find that the opposite is true. It's like just now in that meditation we did, I found it brought joy into the mind, appreciation, brightness. You know, if, we, if we're living with an unacknowledged unaddressed fear of death or of aging, infirmity, and death eventually, it can rob us of a lot of vitality. You know, when we find we're trying so hard to survive that we're not living. Spend a lot of time and energy avoiding, repressing, not looking at this. We can lose out on our life in so many ways. But if we bring it to the surface, we can start to unravel our conditioning bring it to the surface, and, and it can start to let go. The Thai forest master Ajahn Lee Damodaro said, uh, said this, aging, illness, and death are treasures for those who understand them. They're noble truths, noble treasures. If they were people, I'd bow down to their feet every day. It's not such a common attitude. <laughs> But this reflection, we stand on the truth of things. We stand on reality, and that's what we're doing here. That's our whole practice. It's the whole point of things.
And they can awaken in us the sense of the preciousness of our life, of each moment. I don't know if any of you have noticed it. You know, remember how long like summer vacation lasted when you were a kid? Just forever. And now a year goes by like this. As you get older, the, the perception of the passage of time, for me at least, sped up. You know, years have gone by, like just in the blink of an eye. And you know, the perception of time isn't fixed. And a single period of meditation can feel so long. But where have all the, the last weeks gone? They're just gone since we started the retreat. These are some words from a, a crowfoot. He was a Blackfoot, Native uh, American Blackfoot warrior and a teacher, orator. A little while and I will be gone from among you, when I cannot tell. From nowhere we came into nowhere we go. What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is the little shadow that runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. So opening to and touching directly the truth of our own mortality, it, collect, it can connect us to life's brevity, the fragility, but it doesn't have to be in a morbid way because we feel the beauty, the preciousness of it, and it clarifies things. It can clarify things. and We can look at our life and, and ask what matters, what's worth doing? What will I remember as having been worth doing when I come to the end of my life? There's a, a practice. I think there's a book and a, and a whole sort of program some of you are probably familiar with called One Year to Live, I think from Stephen Levine. And, you, know, you, you live your life as though you know it's your last, li- last year. Sometimes I've asked myself if this really was my last year of my life, you know, what would I, would I do anything differently? And sometimes I think, no, it's fine. And sometimes I have to look and say, hey, Greg, what are you doing here? So these heavenly messengers that are, they're like that quotation from Don Juan, they're always an arm's length. Maybe they're to our left. That's where he said they were, at least death. You know, they can wake us up. And they have this ability and power to uh, connect us to, to the um, inherent fragility of life, this unreliability, the, f- the vulnerability this, uh, that's woven through life, this unreliability there. They can shift our view. 
they start by leading us to this awareness of the preciousness of life and and point out um, that the vulnerability of that. And so they open us to uh, the Four Noble Truths, you know, to the uh, fragility of things and to the suffering that can come in an, in an unwise relationship to that. We need to look for refuge in that which is not uh, not reliable. They become a window into uh, reality in that way. And when we open to them this way, then they also become a catalyst that can lead to a profound inner transformation, you could say. We can use them skillfully to open to our own mortality. And then they can lead us to making profound and real choices and maybe changes in our priorities and our, we bring what we really value to the forefront. We really look and see what is worthwhile and we, we give weight and priority to what really matters. And, and it makes a, can make a real difference in the, the course and trajectory of our life. And, and then they send us out. They like to take the prince out of his his comfy palace and out into unfamiliar, unknown terrain in this search. They lead us to seek a real solution. In that story, these heavenly messengers, the old person, the sick person, the, the dead person, it said that they were um, some deva or god from some other realm, a heavenly realm that came down and they, they they showed up to um, get the prince out of the palace and out, out into his quest. And then once they said so they resumed their normal celestial form and, and went home. So, so this, this launching into this search then you know, the preliminary message of these, of the divine messengers is that, hey, there's a problem here. Your house is on fire. Have a look. Wake up. But their ultimate message is this joyful one, this possibility. They're pointing to us to this place of, of safety, to a reliable kind of refuge. And if we look at them directly, I think we see over time, slowly, in a subtle way, that the faces of these divine messengers start to shift and change. And by slow degrees, the face of the Buddha is revealed. And there's a serene smile there. And there's a message of freedom of liberation, of safety. So when they show up, and for this reason they show up and they're there anytime we choose to look at them, because the, this good news is their ultimate final message. Like fingers, they're pointing home. Home. I'm pointing at my heart. 
and the sure and true release and to the deepest possible peace. They're pointing us to that. So let's sit for a minute or two and listen to the gentle sounds of the rain. Feel this beautiful breath. These beautiful sensations. This beautiful heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.